Our speaker today is Dr. Eric Bolger, who is the Academic Dean of the College of the Ozarks. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Chemistry from UC San Diego, an MDiv and a PhD from Trinity Evangelical School in Deerfield. Also a Doctor of Worship Studies from the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies. Uh, more importantly to me is he'd studied under John Salhammer, who wrote the book Genesis Unbound, who is going to illuminate us today on the subject of historical creationism. The thing I remember most about Eric as a colleague several years ago was that he taught me to be respectful to other folks and their origins opinions. And hopefully uh, he can illumine us on, on the subject of historical creationism. Dr. Bolger. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And it's great to be here. I come from College of the Ozarks, which some of you I know have visited because your men's basketball team won the national championship there last March. We host the national tournament, so congratulations to the Wildcats for that. I got to, to be there and see them. Maybe some of you were there as well. I want to, before I begin my talk on Genesis 1, I want to thank the worship team for leading us in God-centered, Christ-centered worship. Worship is not just something we do, but it's something that the Spirit uses to form us. So it's important that worship be solid and biblical, and I think we saw that today, and I'm uh, sure that you see that on a regular basis. So thank you to the worship team. As we begin today, I'd like to talk about uh, the sort of purpose of my talk and the approach I will take. Indiana Wesleyan University, I was reading your newspaper this morning, the, the Sojourn, right? I think is what it's called. And there was an article there about this week and talking about the approach of this university to the topic of creation. And I really appreciated the openness to a variety of interpretations of creation, of Genesis 1, while still maintaining a strong commitment to the authority of Scripture. And that's my approach as well. What I'm going to do today in the time I have is try to explain one approach to Genesis 1, and this is called historical creationism. As Dr. Conrad said, I don't usually call it that because that doesn't tell me a whole lot, but that's what it is called. I tend to call it the promised land view, so when I talk to my colleagues about this view, we refer to it as a promised land view, and hopefully I'll explain to you why it is called that. The goal of this chapel talk, even though I'm going to have to get into some, some details of Genesis 1 and the Bible and Hebrew and things like that, the goal is really edification. So as I prepared and thought about this context, my hope and prayer is that you would leave encouraged and more faithful to Christ. I'm so glad we sang Great is Thy Faithfulness. It really fits with what I'm going to talk about. But also I think that, that you would be motivated to dig more deeply into God's Word. The fact is you will probably leave today after my talk with more questions than answers, but that's a good thing because you're young and you have lots of time to explore Scripture. It's always a tragedy to me when 21-year-olds think that they have mastered Scripture because what should be happening is that you should be allowing it to master you. And so I hope that because of your interaction with the text today, you'll be encouraged and motivated to go study more and to dig deeper and to have meaningful discussions about this text. So let's look at some questions about Genesis chapter 1 
Before coming here, I made a list of them, and I listed scientific questions, and I listed interpretive questions. Let's start with one scientific question that the approach to Genesis, the promised land view, does address, and that's the, the question of the universe, young or old, or the earth, young or old. I know that's a very debated topic, but actually the way that the promised land view addresses this by, is by saying this, Genesis 1 doesn't really answer that question. And so I think it, it helps us to be humble when we talk about how old the universe is, how old the earth is, to realize, at least as I understand Genesis 1, it's really not the purpose of that chapter to answer that question. In fact, I don't think it gives us the information to answer that question. So that's a scientific question that, this, that I will talk about, but that I don't think Genesis 1 is meant to answer. And it's very important when we read Genesis 1 to let it determine what questions it's answering and not to impose our questions on it. Some interpretive questions about Genesis 1. One question, is this meant to be read literally or figuratively? So is Genesis 1 to be read at face value or as a more of a poetic piece? The approach I will take, which is this, this promised land view, actually reads it literally. And so, for example, it will read it when it says day or evening and, and morning, day one, it will read it as saying, well, that's probably a 24-hour period because evening and morning imply 24 hours. So it's going to read it at face value. However, there's some things about it that will be different probably than what you have typically heard. Another interpretive question that I think is sadly neglected and this is one I'd really urge you to think about as you think about Genesis 1, is what's the relationship of Genesis 1 to the rest of the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Genesis 1 was not composed in isolation. It's not meant to be read by itself, but it's connected obviously to chapter 2, which is the story of Eden, chapters 3 through 11, chapters 12 through 50, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and beyond. And I think one of the big mistakes many approaches make is they take Genesis 1 and isolate it and treat it as unto itself and don't give due attention to what its relationship is to other passages. Today's question then to give us a focus will be this. What is Genesis 1 really about? And because of you, I'm about to share with you is probably unfamiliar to many of you. Some of you will be a little shocked by what I say. Some of you may be angry. Actually, I don't think it'll create anger, but, but you will be surprised at some of the things I say. But again, my hope is that that surprise will lead you to dig more deeply into the text. So I'm going to show you a picture here, which is a very familiar picture to anybody born in the last, say, 65 or 70 years. So we know this is a picture of the planet Earth, and it's taken from what perspective? from outer space. I want you to think about the fact that until about the 1950s, this was not the typical thing that people thought of when they heard Earth. And this is especially true of people who lived thousands of years ago. They didn't have this space view of a planet. When they heard the word Earth, they thought, well, as far as you can go east, I don't know which way is east or west, as far as you can go in any direction, as far as you can see in any direction, that's what we call the earth because that's what they knew. 
And so when Moses wrote this to his audience, that's what would have been connotated in their minds. And what I want to suggest to you too, if I can have the next slide, is that what Genesis 1 is about is not really the planet per se, and I'll show you why this is the case, but really about a specific place on the planet. And that there's a Hebrew word for this, which it's called the Eretz. Eretz is the Hebrew word that is typically translated land. And oftentimes in the Torah and then the rest of the Old Testament is translated promised land. And so the basic position I'm going to give you today is that Genesis 1 is mostly about not the creation of the planet, but of a specific place on earth which is called the promised land. Now in order to do this, I'd like to take you briefly to a few passages in the Torah that talk about the promise. There is a promise theme throughout Genesis, throughout the Torah, and this theme is interesting. The last song we sang was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. What God teaches us, what Moses wants us to see through this theme is that God is faithful. God makes a promise, God keeps his promise always, and he keeps his promise without respect to whether we do what's right or what he asks us to. So God's faithfulness is not ultimately dependent on our faithfulness. So let's look at Genesis 15, 18. This is a passage which we're actually familiar with this chapter. Abraham is here reckoned to be righteous by what? By faith. God reckons it to Abraham as righteousness. And here's what God says after that. He says to Abraham, to your descendants I give this land. And I want you to notice here the land, the word for land in Hebrew here is Eretz. So to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. This is where God begins to make the promise that Abraham and his descendants will have a promised land. But I want you to notice too that it's bigger than what we typically think of because it stretches from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates, which is in Iraq. And I have a picture of that. You can see on this, this is a satellite photo of the Middle East, the river of Egypt over to the left, the Euphrates is over to the right. And then I have a, uh, a note here that shows where Canaan is. This is the promised land. This is where Israel is today. But what was promised to Abraham was much larger than this, and that's consistent throughout the Old Testament. And we call this the Eretz, so we can put that peg on there. This whole thing is called the Eretz, or the promised land. Now, let's look at Deuteronomy 34.4. This is at the end of the Torah, and this was written to Israelites about to go into the promised land, specifically Canaan in this case. And here's what God says to Moses. This is the land, or Eretz, I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. So the Eretz is the promised land. It stretches from Egypt to Iraq. God, in the beginning of the Torah and at the end of the Torah, says, I've given it to you and your descendants. One more passage in Joshua chapter 1. So this is after, or right, actually right before Joshua goes into the land. You'll see the, the word used again. The land or Eretz I am about to give to them, to the Israelites, will extend from the desert to Lebanon, 
and from the great river, the Euphrates, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. So this is what the Eretz is. In Hebrew, it's called and Haaretz is, actually, if you go to Israel today or you can look online, that's the name of their newspaper is Haaretz. It's the land. It's the promised land. Now, I want to turn to Genesis chapter 1 because it's not surprising in light of the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament with its focus on the promised land that the author Moses would introduce this theme in Genesis 1. So let me read to you from Genesis 1, verse 2. And this is a familiar verse. Now the Eretz was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I would like you to try, just bear with me on this, and try to set aside the word earth with all of its connotations because that's the way in English that Eretz has been translated. William Tyndale translated it that way, the King James Bible, etc. They've translated Eretz here as earth, which to them connoted something different than it connotes to us. Because again, what we think of when we hear earth is this space-age view of a planet from outer space. Even in King James, King James time, that was not the prevalent connotation. It was the land, it was where we live. And so Genesis 1 verse 2 begins with a focus on the Eretz, or the land, or what is elsewhere called the promised land. And I want you to see what we are told about it. And in, in the, if we look at what's emphasized here, if I could have the next slide, the formless and empty, those two words are used to describe what the promised land looked at at this point in God's creative activity. Now, here's another struggle we have. If you're like me, what I did, I grew up looking at picture Bibles, and they had pictures of a sort of molten earth. It looked like lava. It was not yet settled. And so when I come to this text, I tend to import that idea, that picture, to what formless means. We're always safer, though, if we say, well, what does the Hebrew actually mean? And What's interesting, and these are fun Hebrew words, this is tohu vavohu, which is the way you say formless and empty in Hebrew, so tohu vavohu. And we can find a few other places that those words are used. So in Deuteronomy 32, at the end of the Torah, the word tohu is translated waste. And God says, I took you from a barren and howling tohu, or waste, the wilderness where they were wandering for 40 years, and I placed you in a fertile land. The promised land. Now, the whole phrase tohu vavohu, here translated formless and empty, is actually used also in Jeremiah 4. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to show you the whole passage. But in Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah is telling how God is going to judge the Israelites who are in the promised land because they have been idolatrous. And he says the fruitful land will become a desert. He said the birds will leave. There will be no people, it will be in ruins. So that's the way Jeremiah describes what tohu vavohu looks like. It's desolate. And I have a picture of desolation for you. This is, and it's kind of hard to see here, but this is actually taken in Jordan, just outside of Palestine and Canaan. And it's a very desolate place. In 
I'm from the West Coast. I grew up in California, and so I often drove from Midwest to West. If you ever do that, especially if you go through northern Nevada, you'll see Tohu Vavohu. So go to Salt Lake City and drive west, and that's what Tohu Vavohu looks like. There's like nothing there. The road signs say next services or next gas station 120 miles because it's that far between things, and you look out and you say, how could anything, much less anyone, live here? So that's Tohu Vavohu. And if we look back at Genesis 1-2 and keep that in mind, what Moses seems to be saying is that the promised land was at this place a lot like where the Israelites were when they wandered for 40 years. It was empty. It was lifeless. They wouldn't have survived unless God gave them manna and quail and water out of rocks. So that's what the Eretz looked like at this point in God's creative activity. A few other notes briefly. He also tells us that the Eretz was covered with darkness and with water and that the Spirit of God was present. So not a real desirable place for humans to live. The promised land is tohu vavohu. It's covered with water. It's dark. And God's going to, in the rest of the chapter, make that into a place that is suitable for humans. I'd like to give you, give you a paraphrase, my own paraphrase of Genesis 1 verse 2. So you can see the way that I am understanding it. At this time, the promised land was uninhabitable, desolate and dark, covered with water, and the Spirit of God was present. Now, I'm going to get ahead of my story just a minute, or just a little bit, and tell you what the rest of chapter 1 will be about is God addressing each of those things, the tohu vavohuness of the land, the darkness of the land, and the fact that it's covered with water. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Before we do that, I want to go back to verse 1, which is even more familiar than, than verse 2, and look at it. Verse 1 is 10 words in English. It's 7 words in Hebrew. Hebrew is a more efficient language in that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, all of us have different sort of ideas that come to mind when we read this as well. Let me point out a few things that will help us understand this verse. First of all, the word beginning. The word beginning in English serves a variety of functions to, to cover different kinds of beginnings. Hebrew actually has different words for different beginnings. One kind of beginning is the beginning of this chapel service was at 10.05 p.m., Another kind of beginning, I think we're past the beginning of the service, but when the worship team was leading worship, you could have saying, said something like, what's the beginning of the worship service? Back in August and September, you could say, it's the beginning of the semester. So that second kind of beginning is a period of time before other things take place. In January and February and even March, you can say it's the beginning of the year. For a five-year-old, you can say they're at the beginning of their life. So it's not a point in time, but it's a stretch of time before other things. Now, like I said, Hebrew has different words for different beginnings. The word that's used here, reshit, is the word that means a period of time. Not a point in time, not 10.05 p.m., but in the beginning, however long 
that was. It's nonspecific. It doesn't tell us how long the beginning lasted. And this is why I think we're on very thin ice if we try to argue about how old the Bible says the universe or the earth is. Because beginning is vague, it's nonspecific. Now some other words in this, if we look at the words the heavens and the earth, again, think of an ancient Hebrew. They probably don't hear the same thing or see the same thing when they read this that we do. When I ask students, because I, I teach at College of the Ozarks, when I ask them what they think of when we say heavens and the earth, many of them will say, well, that's heaven, that's where God lives. Or they'll say, the universe. And the fact is that this word here is probably for the Hebrew going to be understood as the sky. What's up there? The clouds, the birds. What's above us? And the next word, which is also the word Eretz, is going to be the land where we live. There's what's above the sky. There's what's here, the land. There's another fact about these two words. They're often used together in what's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech in which two opposites are used to express totality. If I say to you I've been studying day and night or working day and night, you would be wrong to think, well, I study a little during the day and a little bit at night. What I mean is I'm studying all the time. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, he's not said to be an Alpha sometimes and an Omega other times. He's everything. And so this is, these are merisms, and these words here are a merism. And let me give you a paraphrase, or let me first tell you what they mean. They mean everything that exists. By the way, please note on my slides that this everything includes the sun, the earth, the moon, the stars, and you could even put dinosaurs in here, I think. So what did God do in verse 1? In a period of time known as the beginning, we don't know how long it was, he made everything that exists, the universe, including dinosaurs, I would even say including angels, because we know God made angels, but notice they're not mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. So my paraphrase, in the indefinite period of time known as the beginning, God created the sky and the land, that is everything that exists, including the planet Earth on which we live. Verse 2 then, my paraphrase, at this time, the promised land, a place on that earth, was uninhabitable, desolate and dark, covered with water, and the Spirit of God was present. Now, hopefully you're following what I've said so far, and I'm guessing that it's raised some questions or some reactions from you, because this is not typically the way we've been taught to read Genesis 1. But please bear with me as I try to explain how this all fits together. I said a few minutes ago that this actually makes good sense of the rest of chapter 1, so let me show you how that works. Day 1, I want you to notice what God does, and I've, I've just given a short summary of each day here. And again, I, I think that there's no reason not to take these days as 24-hour periods, because God created everything in some indefinite period of time called the beginning. And now we're talking about his preparation of a specific place. And the first thing God does is allows the light of the sun to break through the darkness that covered the land. 
And what God says about it is that it's good. Now, it's hard to see that orange colored font there, but the word good is really important because that's how God says, I'm getting it ready for the humans. Let me give you an analogy. What God is doing here is making, not creating, the promised land. The the land that God is preparing already exists, but in the same way we say, I'm going to make my bed, and we don't mean take out a hammer and wood, build a mattress. We mean pull the sheets up and make it neat and ready to sleep in. That's what God is doing here. He is making the land ready for the first humans, and at each step, he deals with the darkness, with the water, and then with the emptiness and desolation, he says it's good. Day two, I want you to notice something about day two. Some of you may have noticed this before, but I think it's very important to notice that God does not on day two say it is good. Check me on that one, okay? Read your Bibles and see, notice that whereas God does something on day one, he lets the light shine on the land. On day two, he does something, but he doesn't then say it's good. And the reason for that, I think, is because it's not yet ready for humans to live on. So what God does on day two is he separates waters above from waters below. The clouds are in the sky, but there's still waters on the surface of the land. God does not declare day two good, even though he does activity. On day three, however, what God does is makes dry ground appear, and then he calls it good because humans like dry ground. They don't like to live like fish. So the dry ground appears, and God calls it good. Also on day three, God begins to fill the Eretz, the empty, barren, desolate land, with fruit trees, which is the same thing we read in Genesis chapter 2, and God calls that good. On day four, and this would bear more explanation, but we don't have time to do that, God causes light to break, or I'm sorry, God assigns purposes to the sun, moon, and stars so that they shine and give help on the air. It's two things he does here. He causes the sun, moon, and stars to serve as signs and to mark seasons. Seasons in Hebrew is a word for festivals. Festivals are things like Passover and Pentecost, etc. So God is here giving his people the tools they need to worship him. Day five, God fills the sea and the sky and the Eretz with creatures. This is good. On day six, God fills the dry ground in the Eretz with creatures. This is good. And on day six, at the end, God sees all that he has done to the Eretz. He's made the bed. It's ready. It's very good for humans. So pictorially, remember what desolation looks like. And then imagine what God did in the next slide as he took a desolate land And he made it into a garden, into a place that would be called Eden, a place with fruit trees, with water, and most importantly, with God's very presence. So let me summarize what I'm telling you. Verse 1 of Genesis affirms that God created everything. And again, I think that includes things that aren't listed in the rest of the chapter including, most importantly, angels. But I would also even say, if you want a place for dinosaurs, this is a good place. So, summarizing, in the beginning is an indefinite period of time. We are not told when or how long this lasted, and that's okay. 
The point is that this chapter is not trying to answer the question of how old is the earth or how old is the universe. I don't think Moses knew. So when we ask that question of the chapter, we're actually asking something that it does not intend to answer for us. Verse 2 then describes the condition of the promised land or heiress before God began to prepare it for humans. It was, in verse 2, uninhabitable. The analogy for Moses' readers is it's just like where they had spent the last 40 years in a desolate wilderness land where they survived only by God's provision. It is not yet good for human habitation. And then verses 3 to 31 describe God's preparation of the promised land or Eretz for the first humans. This occurs sequentially after the beginning. It's interesting that in Hebrew, day one is not called the first day, but it's called day one. It's not an ordinal number, it's a cardinal number. I think many, many, many days occurred before day one, but day one marks the beginning of God's preparation of the promised land. I also believe that we can take these as six 24-hour days plus one day of rest for God. And just a note on the rest of the story so you see how this fits in. We can say that the same God who had prepared the good land for Adam and Eve, that's Eden, and restored it to Abraham and his descendants, the Eretz or promised land, was now preparing it for the people of Israel. The good land was God's gracious gift to Israel just as it had been to the first humans. Now, the fun part about this is it extends into the New Testament so that, and I'm skipping a lot in the Old Testament. If I had a semester with you, I would give you more. But just to jump ahead, all of this ultimately points to Jesus Christ because in Christ is fulfilled all promises, or are fulfilled all promises of the Old Testament, including the promise of a place so that we now find our place, our location, our significance, not geographically, but personally in Christ. And in the end, Revelation 21 and 22, the redeemed will be with the Lord God and the Lamb in the new Jerusalem, in the restored land. And I'll show you that picture one more time. This is where we're headed. We're not headed to desolation. We're not headed to a wilderness with no inhabitants. We're headed to a fruitful land which comes down from heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. So I've thrown a lot at you. I've given you a lot of information. I would be delighted to talk with any of you after the service. I'll be around for some time today because I'm sure for many of you this is very new. But I submit it to you humbly. I'm not saying that I'm right. But I do think it's important that you be aware that there are ways of understanding Genesis that make sense of the text that may be different than things that you've heard. Can I pray briefly before we close? Father, I give thanks to you for your word, which is so deep and so rich that we can spend our lives and even eternity reading it and still gain so much. I pray that these words that I have spoken and that these people have heard would take root that what is true would take root and what is not true would be blown away like chaff. 
and that you would help all of us to grow more fully up into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.